Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, where we interview Yanelli Espinal, Miss Be Helpful, and talk about the mission to teach financial literacy to our youth. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me as always is my financial education proponent co-host, Scott Trench. Great to be here, Mindy. Love talking about financing, personal finance. I love talking about personal finance. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, or help speed along the introduction of legislation that will teach financial literacy to high schoolers in your area. We'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards your dreams. Scott, today is a fantastic episode. We have an absolute fireball of a guest. Yanelli Espinal is so excited about financial literacy and so excited about bringing that to our high school students across America. This is her mission in life. And the whole reason it is her mission in life is because she grew up not knowing what she was doing with money. Um, does that sound familiar, Scott? Have we ever talked to anybody who didn't know what they were doing about money? Um, only, I think, everybody ever on the show. So this is absolutely necessary, and I'm so excited to bring her in today. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of people who didn't know what they're doing with money, and not a lot of people who are making a bigger dent in solving that problem than in Ellie. So I think it's a pleasure to hear from her today. And I think you'll be very impressed with the work that she's doing and the mission she's on. Absolutely. Before we bring her in, we have a new segment on our show called The Money Moment, where we share a money hack, tip, or trick to help you on your financial journey. Today's money moment is, did you know that you can use apps like Ibotta to earn money back on what you already spend? It's simple. You just scan your receipts from the app-approved stores like Walmart at Target, and you start earning money back. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal Do Not Call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. 
Yanelli Espinel is a millennial financial educator who is known on the internet as Miss Be Helpful. She started her career as a teacher and now serves as the director of educational outreach at Next Gen Personal Finance. She is currently on a mission to convince lawmakers across the country to make personal finance a high school graduation requirement. And honestly, I think that is about the best personal finance mission I have heard so far. Yanelli, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. What an intro. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad that you're excited about the mission because I feel like a lot of it's it's tricky, right? Talking to people about adding another requirement to school. They're already so overloaded. But this one, man, this one class is so important. I also feel like there's something you can cut, you know, uh, in there. <laughs> Make room for this. Yeah. Cut a semester of gym to put in a semester of financial independence financial education in general. I mean, what did I learn? And I'm older than all of you. I learned how to fill out a check, not what it means to go overdrawn, not how to make a balanced budget. I learned how to balance my checkbook. I learned how to fill out the two section in the check and the number goes here and then you write it out in English and then you sign it here and you can put a little memo here. That is essentially worthless now that I'm the only person on earth who still writes checks. Oh, no. <laughs> no, there's, trust me, there's a lot of people that write checks. Actually, when I work with teachers, they'll tell me all the time, like, it's embarrassing. These students, they don't know how to write a check. They don't know what a check is. And I'm like, no, that's not embarrassing. That's just a testament to how technology has changed and modernized the way we utilize our financial systems. We These students are mobile banking. They're investing on apps. They're using buy now, pay later. They're not doing this writing check stuff physically, right? Like it's all happening electronically. And so it's kind of interesting because the teachers themselves, they learned like you very much like some of the older traditional methods of handling money. And now they have to relearn and learn again, like all these new systems so that they can be confident to teach it to the, the students in their classes. Awesome. Well, we are going to spend a lot of time, um, hopefully, talking about the work that you're doing and the impact that you're having and and the success in a general sense that the country is having in many parts of the country and getting uh, more fi financial literacy requirements. But before we do that, I would love to hear a little bit about who you are and what your journey with money is and how you got to, to the where you are today. Yes. Well, I mean, there really would be no me working in finance if there wasn't me messing up with my finances. I mean, the, my entry point into personal finance was being a hot financial mess. I was probably, oh, maybe 14, 15 when I got my very first job in high school and I was working as an intern at an architecture firm. I never saved a penny. Like I would get my paychecks, would use them up, wait for the next paycheck, use that one up. I just... I never had, you know, a desire to save. I just wanted to spend always. And I grew up in a family of low-income immigrants. My parents are from Dominican Republic. So they never really talked to us about money. It was very much this kind of taboo, unspoken, undiscussed topic because they didn't know much themselves. And my household was cash only pretty much my entire life. Um, and I talk about it in my book, but like the first time that my parents actually got bank accounts was because they were they were applying for social security benefits and there no longer are physical checks mailed out to people. Paper checks are no longer mailed for social security benefits. You have to have a bank account to claim your benefits. And my parents, they were like, what do you mean? And so I was like, don't worry, we're going to go online. And mind you, this was like all during COVID where banks were pretty much like shut down. And my parents were having a panic attack. I was like, don't worry, we're going to open up your online account and then you're going to be able to use that to claim the benefits. So I sort of held their hands through a lot of the things that they were dealing with. And, you know, thank goodness that I had that eye-opening experience with them being, you know, new Americans immigrating here, not knowing English, not knowing the financial systems. They had no education, I mean, little education, they went to the second or third grade. So for me to just constantly be uh, comparing myself to my parents, I recognize how lucky I am to have been able to go to college, get a master's degree, get a job that pays, you know, five, six figures, be able to achieve these things that my parents never had access to. And so for me, that was like my wake up call, like, okay, I could keep being a financial hot mess and swiping my credit cards, not knowing how much I owe or even like what my total balance or what my interest rate is, or I could, you know, take serious action so that I don't just continue to repeat negative cycles, especially the cycle of poverty. Because, you know, for me, that was a big, big thing that I felt like I had it like this weight on my back that I needed to make a change so that 
the next generation of my family wouldn't be repeating these negative cycles again. So could you dive one level deeper into the specifics of the trouble you found yourself in, I think in college, uh, and then how you kind of dug yourself out of that and achieve financial independence, as I understand it, in a couple of years after that? Yeah. So honestly, um, it was kind of just peer pressure. But I got to college and it was a combination of peer pressure, I would say, and like some of the psychology coming, you know, out of uh, poverty, right? So I grew up in a household where every time I wanted to get something, it was a no. No, we don't have money for that. No, we can't afford that. Um, for groceries and food, it was food stamps. And for um, paying for school supplies was pretty much the only thing where my dad would give us money if we, if we could show him a list of school supplies that the teacher said we had to have. <laughs> Otherwise, it was like, nope, we need every dollar to, you know, pay for everything that we need. My parents have nine children. So for context, you know, it's not just me saying, dad, I need this. It's all eight of my brothers and sisters, plus me coming up to that at multiple different points in time saying, we need this. We need this much money. We need that. There's a class trip. I have to pay these dues. I got this sports fees. If he was overwhelmed and he was the only working parent because my mom was taking care of all of us, because imagine paying for childcare for nine kids. It's, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> so basically that environment growing up in that, that type of household is what led me to have the type of mindset around like a scarcity mindset. Like, no, I can't ever have the things that I want, name brand things that my friends at school have, I can't get. So when I got to college, um, and think, thankfully, you know, I got a full scholarship to college. And that was when like everything kind of changed. Like it was a complete shift in my environment, the type of people that I was surrounded with, the way that they were speaking, the way everything about my life changed dramatically one moment to the next. And all of a sudden I was expected to be like, yeah, I'm down to go bowling. Yeah, let's go to the movies. I'll come. Sure. Oh, it's your birthday dinner tonight. I'll chip in 50 bucks for a group dinner for your birthday. Where was all this money coming? I just didn't understand like where all the money that my friends was spending was coming from. And I didn't really think too much about it. I just went ahead and got a credit card. And my first credit card was $1,500. I pretty much maxed that out within a week buying my laptop, my laptop, my textbooks and a few things here and there. So that's when I got a second credit card, then a third, then a fourth. And by the time I graduated college, I had over $20,000 of debt. Even though I was one of those lucky kids to get a full ride, I still ended up with pretty close to the average amount of student loan debt you would have. So I think people get, they're shocked to hear that. Like, I don't understand. You got a full ride to college. Like what happened? And it was just me misusing the credit cards and feeling like I had to buy everything so I could fit in, especially being on a campus, uh, you know, with a lot of wealthier peers around me. And, and where did you go to college? Because with, with all these wealthy peers, like what was the context of that? So I, I got a scholarship to Brown University. They have a, a special program there for low-income students that if your parents make under a certain threshold, then they make a commitment to ensure that you graduate without having to borrow any student loans. And so I was part of that program. It's the Sydney Frank Scholarship Program. Awesome. And, and, the, and the people who attend Ivy League institutions like Brown tend not to be from Yes. backgrounds that involve generational poverty and have lots of spending money. So I can see how that would be a lot of a lot of pressure. Yeah. And I remember my group of the other students that were in that scholarship program with me, it was probably about 30 in my class year. And they would always like host events and dinners and things to help us get together to like network because they knew that it's like finding a needle in a haystack, walking around campus, trying to find another kid who grew up in poverty is very difficult because most of the students there, their families are, you know, have a lot of wealth and have a lot of success and, you know, all kinds of accolades and the connections that have been able to get them in or maybe their legacy. I mean, there's just, it's a different world than anything I ever knew. When I got there, I didn't realize exactly how much my life was going to change. So yeah, you're absolutely right about the environment not being something that I had ever been exposed to before. So when you graduated, you still had similar debt load. I mean, honestly, only $20,000 in credit card debt is pretty impressive with the type of spending that you were doing. Did you have a job to help cover some of your expenses? Did you get any sort of stipend from the school to to cover some expenses? What did your scholarship look like? Yeah. So the scholarship was um, all tuition paid, room and board paid, and three meals a day on the meal plan paid. So all of that was something that I never got billed for one time, which is amazing. But then of course there were like school fees, like certain classes that had science lab fees or other types of supplies that you had to, you know, pay out of pocket, textbooks, things that were not included in the tuition, but still, you know, cost a lot of money. So those things weren't covered. 
And pretty much within the first week or two of, of college, I knew that I had to work because to your point, like if I hadn't worked, that it probably would have been even worse, the amount of debt that I would have had. So I started working at the pizzeria my freshman year. By sophomore year, I was the supervisor of that pizzeria because I was working so many hours. They were like, you're here all the time. You'd make a good supervisor. <laughs> I was pretty much there night and day. And then I picked up a bunch of other jobs too. Um, I was a resident advisor in my dorm. So, you know, the, the resident counselor, some colleges call it, but I basically managed events and hosted things and made sure everybody was like following the rules in the dorm. And that was a couple hundred bucks every, every two weeks. So I, I kind of tried to be strategic about the jobs that I did so that I wasn't exchanging my time for money so much. I was doing things that like, okay, like this is stipend based or this is like a grant based, like work study program allowed me to kind of get that money and pay for the textbooks. And so I would say most of the stuff that I was putting on credit cards was not technically related to school was really the social spending, the clothes, the shoes, the, you know, spring break trip to Cancun. I'm pretty sure I was like kissing dolphins in Mexico one year because I was putting it all on my credit card. Like I'm trying to live, you know, I'm trying to live similar to my friends and peers because I didn't want to feel like I deserved any less than them. We're all in the same class. We're all doing the same hard work. We all deserve the same, you know, felt so psychological to me, this thing that I felt like I deserved what they, you know, what they had, I deserved too. So what did you end up doing um, after graduation? How long did it take you to to tackle this credit card debt? Yeah. So I graduated in 2011. Right away, I became a classroom teacher. So I joined the program called Teach for America. And I studied it. when I was in school, I kind of thought maybe I want to go back to New York and do like some type of, um, uh, urban studies work. I thought I might wanted to do like urban planning or some type of museum education because I was very much into art. But I took a class my senior year in college, which was um, the history of African-American education in the United States. And that professor, that class, but the professor too, just completely changed my entire perspective about my role to, you know, uh, help within education. And my role wasn't to come back to New York and do museum education and arts education as much as that's fun. How could I be teaching kids to paint when they can't read? <laughs> like, so I felt this calling, like I just knew that I had to be in a classroom helping kids learn to read because this, the gap that exists between specifically black and white students, um, and especially students that are black in poverty versus their white counterparts in wealthy areas is so wild. I mean, that gap is just so wide that the amount of work that it would take is like, you really have to be working with kids pretty much all day, every day so that they can catch up. Um, so I learned about things like, you know, the 30 million word gap, which is that by the time kids turn four years old, they have heard four, they have heard 30 million words when they're in an affluent household versus 30 million more words versus their um, peers who are in a lower income household that have heard 30 million words less than their wealthy peers at the age of four, four years old. Like this kind of stuff, it just opened my mind. And I was like, okay, I really have to teach. So I joined Teach for America. I started teaching third and fourth grade and I got my first big girl paycheck, which was like $1,200, $1,300. And you know, I mean, I thought I felt rich. Like I had, again, never had that much money. I think that's probably how much my dad made in maybe two months of work. So I just, I felt like, oh, I have, I have money now. And so I just, um, I just continued to spend. I continued to pretty much live spending mindlessly like I was doing in college throughout the first two years of teaching. And then in 2013 or 2014, um, I just started looking at my expenses and, like, you know, this doesn't make sense. Like, I, I think I just paid this credit card and now it says the balance is higher, but I made a payment. And I, I, I don't know too much about credit cards, but I know basic subtraction. If I pay you, you subtract that from the balance, right? But the interest was accruing so aggressively that my balance was going up no matter how many payments I made. So that was the first thing that kind of shocked me and struck me. And that was in 2014 when I kind of sat and pulled all of my credit card statements and actually started reading them and seeing all these interest fees. And I was like, okay, what is going on? What is this interest thing? Like, I do not like this. Um, and then I just started Googling. I started researching and I read a book uh, by Susie Orman called Women and Money that taught me to sit down and actually put together a debt payoff plan. And her book talked about a nine month plan um, I actually did it twice through. So I just committed to 18 months and paying over $1,100 a month every month was pretty much how I was able to get out of debt in 18 months. 
And you were doing this while working as a teacher. Did you have any other sources of income during that period? I had a couple other sources of income, but they were very sporadic. So babysitting, tutoring, you know, the things that like a teacher could do very easily because parents trusted me to take care of the kids. I could also help them with their homework. So like double win, I could, I could charge way more than the average babysitter because I'm helping with homework. And so, um, I tutoring and babysitting combo worked for me. And then um, I was also taking on some like on-screen work that I found through a lot of like digital learning companies would need these like on-screen instructors pretty much for virtual learning, which is wild to think that there was virtual learning going on back in 2013. But yeah, those were some of my earliest like side gigs that paid well. I would just, I would show up, we'd get on a call and they would give me a lesson plan and I would just be like, hey learners, today you're going to be doing some basic addition. Are you ready? And they would just record my lesson because I'm very animated. It was like being in the classroom was such an easy way to practice that kind of stuff. And so naturally that led me about a year and a half later to start posting videos on YouTube and talking about that I just finished paying off $20,000 of credit card debt. And I wanted everybody to know that, you know, if you're in debt, you don't have to continue to be in that much debt, even though it might feel like it's something that's a forever problem. It doesn't have to be. And if I could learn these principles and these strategies and skill sets that, you know, I could apply right away and take a few, you know, a year or two of my life to fix my money, then I wanted to share that with more people so they could do that too. So that's interesting. You're a teacher making criminally low wages and you still managed to pay off $20,000 in debt in two years. That's really impressive. I mean, I'll tell you, I had a, lot, a couple of advantages, right? One is I was living at home for the first year in my mom, in my mom and dad's basement. And that is huge. A lot of people they'll move to a new city when they graduate college and they have no choice but to start paying rent. So I was very lucky that first year I didn't have to pay rent. I was just helping with one of the bills at home. So my, I think my mom made me pay the electric bill or the cable bill, but that was like my bill, right? And each one of my sisters and brothers had, we each owned one bill, right? And my dad jokes about that to this day. He's like, why you think I had nine kids? You think I just did that for no reason? Each kid takes a bill. I don't have any bills to pay. You know, he, and he jokes about, <laughs> <laughs> he jokes about like, it sounds like a great early retirement plan. Literally. He's like, he's like, if I collect a hundred dollars a month from each of my kids, I got $900 a month of income. I'm like, real funny. You know, it's funny because he says it now. And I'm like, you didn't think, you did not think of that before you had the nine kids. You joke about that now afterwards, but he did not plan strategically for his nine kids to be his retirement uh, plan. But, but yeah, I mean, we, at that point, you know, it, it was a lot like of juggling things. And so I knew that I had to take advantage of wherever something was easy. Like, let me just take that easy way. So living at home was easy because I didn't have to pay rent. It was super close to the school that I was teaching at, maybe a, a 20 minute commute on the subway. And also I didn't have to spend so much money on food because my mom and dad were always cooking, you know? So every time I would come home, rice and beans, like they, they were cooking all the time. So I could pack lunch from leftover from dinner. And I, so it helped me in a lot of ways to kind of save and cut costs in the areas where people spend the most money, which is housing, transportation, and food. Okay. This is interesting because when you said, oh, I had a lot of advantages. I'm like, what advantages did you possibly have? You are a teacher. And I'm going to say this every single time I bring this up. You are a teacher making criminally low wages and you have $20,000 in, in debt. What advantage do you have? You have the advantage. And I, I hear a lot of people saying that same thing. Well, I'm in debt. I guess I'll just always be in debt. This is just my way. What am I going to do about it? You have to do something about it or you're right. That will always be your way. So you stayed at home. You could have gone out and gotten a, a an apartment. You could have even house hacked and gotten an apartment with a friend, which is still more expensive than $0. And being in debt sucks. And living at home as an adult probably sucks. But getting out of debt doesn't suck. Getting out of debt is fantastic. So I love that you decided not to fall into that trap that so many other people do of, well, now I have my first job, I have to leave the house. I mean, I was tempted. I'm not going to lie. I was tempted, especially because there were teachers in the school building that I worked in that were like living together. Like they, they roomed together and would like come to work together. So my second year teaching, that's when I was like, all right, I gave in. And I was like, I'm a grown woman now. So I want my own apartment. And then I ended up moving in with one of the teachers that taught in the same grade level in the department that I taught in. Her roommate was moving to China for a teaching abroad program and she needed a roommate. So she mentioned it to me and I was like, 
where do you live exactly? And it was a little closer to the school compared to my parents' house, but not that much. And so I started paying like $800 a month when I didn't need to. I could have continued to live in the basement. I had my routine. I had a little private entrance. I had the food covered. I had like, there was so much about my situation that worked and that I was really, like, I, I call that advantages because I do think there are advantages. A lot of people don't have that, right? They move to a new city. They don't have their parents anymore. They don't have their families, right? They have to buy food and pay for rent. And so and now I look back, I'm like, I should have stayed another year or maybe two more years, but I did eventually give in. I don't want to give myself too much credit. I did eventually move in with one of my uh, teacher friends and, and that's when ordering sushi and buying wine. And then the, and then I broke the budget again, right? But eventually had to kind of get a come to Jesus moment eventually to kind of get my money back on track. But yeah, I'm not completely, uh, innocent here. <laughs> many other people don't that are moving towards financial independence don't come from a background of generational poverty. Um, you know, that, that, so I, I, I think we can, uh, allow you your advantages. Everybody has a few advantages when it comes to the, this, this journey, right? There's no perfect, uh, situation perfect in the sense that there's literally no advantages whatsoever to take advantage of on the path to financial independence. Everyone's got a few and it's up to you to play your hand, your dealt with the best of your ability, which you did. I love that point. I love that. Yes, I totally agree. Let's talk about the the you you paid off this debt. You just told us you alluded to it here. You're uh, getting a new, um, you you move into a new place with a friend. Walk us through the journey to financial independence. How does that transpire over the next eight to ten years? So it was in what 2013, 2014 when I finally kind of started paying attention to my finances and I actually tracking my spending and had a clear debt payoff plan in place where I knew the date I was going to be debt free. Right. So that was motivating. It definitely felt a little bit lonely. So I took to social media because I didn't really know anybody in my family that was like nerding out about money like me. Like they just weren't, you know, and at a certain point, people were actually telling me to shut up because I was talking too much about like, do you know that if you invest in a Roth IRA, you never have to pay taxes on the gains. If you wait till you're 59 and a half, take out the money. They're like, what are you talking about? We don't care about that. So I can relate. Right. <laughs> When you find other money nerds, everybody's like, yep, 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 that's me. But I just, I felt like I was compelled to talk about this stuff because I was, you know, going down this rabbit hole online and reading books and more books and more books, you know. After I read Susie Orman, I read um, Thomas Stanley, The Millionaire Next Door. I read Your Money or Your Life. I read The Simple Path to Wealth. I read Automatic Millionaire. I read Five Years Before You Retire. I mean, I just became obsessed. I started reading every book about money that popped up in a Google search. And it just, it felt to me like I, there was this area of education, even though I, I have two master's degrees, I've gone to an Ivy League university. I, I was deprived of this whole area of education, which is financial education. So now I started to feel a little bit angry. Like, wait, what? I did so well in school. I excelled academically. If one of my classes was about money, I would have excelled at money. It's not fair that they didn't teach me. Like it just, it felt so wrong. And so I just became obsessed with teaching myself. I read every book. I watched every video on YouTube. I listened to all the podcasts. I became obsessed with all the blogs. And, you know, now I'm, I feel it's, it's wild because I went to FinCon last year and spoke on the stage and got to meet like all of these people who I've literally been fangirling over online, right? Like for years. So, you know, it's a full, I've come full circle, but at that time it felt to me like this was a totally different world of like ambitious people on the internet that I would probably never meet. But how cool was it that I could tap into that community? Because my real community, my siblings, my family, my, my friends, like, weren't so into this financial stuff like I was. So, um, you know, once I committed to paying off the debt, I realized like I could just go right back to spending again and end up in debt again. Or, you know, I could kind of take what I've been learning from these books and apply it, which is to continue to pretend that I'm still in debt, continue to live a little more frugally than I might otherwise. And all the payments I was making to the credit cards, put them into my high yield savings account. And once I hit like $10,000, I was like, Oh, like that's my money. Like, what if I keep going and I have 20 or 30, $40,000? Like now it felt like, you know, the thrill of the save. Um, but at that point I knew that I couldn't just save the money. I had to start investing. So I began to learn about like the stock market and index funds and ETFs and like, how did, how does this all work? Um, and then once I did that, I was like, Oh, there's this whole community of like fire, which I thought fire was so so intriguing and like tempting for me to immediately jump in and be like, I'm part of the fire community. 
But, you know, with two parents who have zero assets, I, I knew it wasn't going to be feasible for me because I'm not like going the corporate route, making multiple six figures. I'm not like there were so many choices that I made to do mission driven work, to live pretty minimally, to help my family that I knew, OK, I'm probably not going to hit fat fire. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But I could definitely do coast fire if I get really serious. Um, and, and I did, you know, I hit Kofi probably right before my 32nd birthday, which, which is amazing to know that even if I have to stop contributing to retirement because I need to maintain my parents or pay for whatever, um, I, I'll still be able to retire with dignity, even if I don't add another penny. That feeling is like, you just sleep like a baby at night. It's so amazing. So we joked about it earlier, but, um, did the, uh, relentless talking about money, investing, personal finance, and all these related concepts, did that, did that have any impact on, on friends and family um, after they, you know, uh, asked you to stop talking about it a few times? But, you know, did, uh, did, did this begin to spread around your, your community? Yeah. So when I, when, I, when I first posted on YouTube, it was really just my Facebook friends and like my family that was watching the videos. And then I think I realized that something was shifting and there were like random strangers watching me on YouTube one because my little brother texted me one day and said, oh my goodness, look what my friend Brian just sent me. And it was like a screenshot of his friend Brian recommending that he watch a video about credit cards that I posted on my YouTube channel. <laughs> so my little brother was like, that's my sister. And Brian was like, yeah, okay, bro. He's like, no, no, that is literally my sister. So I, that's when I realized like, oh, wow, this is like reaching people. And I think at that point, my family noticed, wow, she's reaching people and what she's posting is legit and she knows her stuff. Maybe we should consider ourselves lucky to have her so close to us. And then, of course, you know, from there on, it was like a million text messages a day. Where do I set up the 529? How do I do it? Which do you think I should have a Roth or a traditional? You know, can you help me pick inv investment funds in my 401k? You know, then it, then it was just endless. You mentioned earlier that you were coast fi. Can you describe what that is? And can you also describe how the journey towards coast fi and your switch from being a teacher to a full-time financial educator, how do those have any interplay? Good question. Uh, so Coast Fi is a concept where your goal is going to be to reach a certain dollar amount in your investment account that when compounding at an average rate at the, of the stock market, which historically has been about nine or 10% for the next few decades of your working career will reach a million or more, or will reach however much you need. Most people nowadays want to say, I think I need at least a million dollars to retire, right? Because at a 4% rate, that's $40,000 a year that's at least a decent amount, but most people want and need more than that. But for me, I just kind of started like, let's say if I can hit 1.5 million, can I hit a little more than that? And so for me, that was hitting $120,000 in my investment account by my 30th or 31st, 32nd birthday as close as possible. Um, and, and again, when you do the math and you can pull up any compound interest calculator, I like the one on investor.gov, but you can use any one and you just type in the starting amount. So let's say 120,000 and you say an average rate of return at 9%. You do this for 25 to 30 years. You'll see that that's going to be your final amount even if you never add another dollar. And that's the key of Coast Fi, that you're coasting to retirement because you don't have to keep on working to add extra, you know, to pull money from your income to put into this retirement account. So um, once I did that, I was like, okay, whew, that's, I do continue to add. I'm not going to lie. I max out my retirement account every year. I max out my Roth IRA. Like I keep going because I'm privileged enough to now have multiple sources of income and several of them are passive. So it's like, okay, well, if I can, why not? But in the event that I needed to stop adding whatever, you know, $10,000 a year to my investment for my retirement, I could, I could, and it wouldn't mess up a thing. I would still be on track to coast. So that's the thing that kind of gave me peace of mind. Um, and then in terms of the shift from, with my work, like, I mean, I was teaching through 2013. Then in 2014, I said, okay, I'm going to, I wanted to combine the two things that I was really passionate about, which was obviously teaching and this new personal finance thing that I was kind of discovering. So in 2013, 2014, I decided to pivot to business and start learning how to run a financial or how to run an education business. So I was a director at an education center, which did math and reading tutoring after school. And I was responsible for collecting monthly tuition from 400 plus parents and managing the schedules for all these students coming in and out the door. And, 
I think it was good because it was a nice transition from education over to learning about running a business. What is it like to market, to advertise, to, you know, talk to clients, to collect the, the tuition, right? Like there were all these components to that that I never dealt with in the classroom. So it was a nice complement to the skill set that I developed teaching. And running a, a tutoring center, I think, was great for me following the classroom. It paid just a little bit more than teaching, you know, pretty comparable. Honestly, it wasn't like I was making a whole bunch of money, but the experience was invaluable because I realized that as a teacher, I knew how to market and how to sell. I had to sell kids on fractions. Try to try to get an eight-year-old to get excited about learning how to do a fraction. Like, <sighs> so I knew that I had skills. I was like, I'm creative. I'm animated. I I can come up with something and sell something. I can put these skills together. Communication was really good. You know, presenting in front of a, a large group of kids, adults, parents, teens, anybody, put me in front of a hundred, 200, a thousand people. I'm good. I'm not nervous. I love that. And that's, I realized that that's pretty rare. So I wanted to capitalize on that. And so that's when I decided to shift. I was like, okay, if I keep teaching and I keep working in education, pretty much you're capped at a certain amount of money, right? Because you can only really move up but so much. If you're a teacher, you can become, you know, teacher leader, you can become an administrator, you can even become the superintendent. But at a certain point in time, you're sort of limited into how much you could make. So I realized, okay, let me kind of pivot outside of education and start thinking about a business. What would my business be? Um, and luckily, YouTube just started to take off pretty naturally uh, and organically. And so I just pivoted out of YouTubing and speaking on camera to speaking in person and being able to collect pretty high speaking fees to motivate teenagers at youth conferences, to speak to women at women's conferences, to speak at FinCon, to speak at all of these different places where it's a combination of like my expertise and the work that I'm doing for financial education, but also my personal story, which I think is like, you know, you all mentioned is it can be unique a lot of times in the financial space. We know you've heard it before. Cash flow is getting very hard to find. There's always long distance investing, but you may be thinking, I don't have a team, enough experience, or the market knowledge to get in. That's where you're wrong. And that's also where Rent to Retirement comes in. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed, allowing you to invest out of state with confidence. They've got single family, multifamily, new build, and syndication opportunities across multiple markets. They even have bird deals with immediate equity. Rent to Retirement helps investors learn how to build a bulletproof business plan with the best investment and tax strategies around to help you reach financial freedom through real estate. There's no excuse not to get started in real estate investing when you have the right team and systems already in place. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. 
Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Don't miss this opportunity to back Main Street over Wall Street and start earning passive real estate income. Learn more about investing with Pine at pinefinancialgroup.com BP. That's pinefinancialgroup.com BP. So, Yanelli, let's let's change course a little bit here. Generational wealth tends to stay with families, just like generational poverty tends to stay with families. And we want to break this cycle. And you are working to break this cycle. What are some of the things that you're doing uh, with regards to policy and education? I love this question. So uh, in 2018, I found out about an organization. Well, actually, I got an email from someone at an organization called NGPF.org, which stands for Next Gen Personal Finance. Um, it's a 501c3. It's a nonprofit that focuses on offering free curriculum so that teachers can actually teach personal finance without having to come out of pocket to buy the materials, the lessons, the materials that they need to teach these lessons. But that organization realized pretty soon that you can put together the bomb curriculum, the best, the most amazing resources ever, lesson plans, assessments, homework, everything that a teacher needs. But if the teacher themselves have never learned personal finance, it doesn't matter how stellar the curriculum is. They don't have the competence and the confidence. So that organization sort of knew, okay, we have to couple the curriculum with teacher training. So in 2018, I got an email. I was like, hey, we offer these teacher training modules. And one of them is kind of like this podcast format where we invite speakers to come and inspire the teachers. And we think your story would be great. You know, you have YouTube content. You're doing all this work. You used to be a teacher. And so I was like, oh, sure. I joined the podcast and met with the founder, co-founder of the organization, Tim Renzetta. And he's from New Jersey. He had moved all the way out to California because he went to Stanford for business school and then had a lot of success as an entrepreneur and started to think about, okay, well, what did he want to do with this success? And for him, the number one mission he wanted to achieve was getting every American access to financial education. So he created Next Gen Personal Finance. And when he met me on the podcast interview, he didn't stop emailing me. <laughs> he just kept on emailing me after that, that call. He was like, I just can't stop thinking about this podcast conversation. I can't stop thinking about your story. I, like, I, we got to work together more. I got to figure out ways to loop you into this work. So we started with a, a multi-city tour where I was just going to different schools and talking about, you know, what is it like to be a YouTuber? Because that's a great hook for high school kids. They all want to be YouTubers and TikTokers. So I go, what is it like to be a YouTuber? How much money do you make? You know, what is your day-to-day like? And then like, okay, well, what about money? Like, let's talk about the money part. Like, even if you make all the money, if you don't know how to manage it, you'll lose it all. So we started then having real talk about money. And then at the end, the teachers would ask me about the resources they could use to teach. And I would say, oh, great. NGPF has a bunch and it's all free. This is like mind blowing for teachers that it's all free and it always will be. So they, you know, would leave, they would kind of sign up and start using the curriculum. And at that time in 2018, there were about 5,000 teachers that on total that were using NGPF. And today in 2023, there's over 70,000 teachers. So just, I mean, talk about what is the business term? Hockey, hockey stick or Nike check when the growth is like exponential like that. 
So I realized like, wow, like this, you know, this is something, this is really impactful and um, have loved working with NGPF. My role there as director of educational outreach in 2018 started very formally with doing teacher training and creating curriculum videos for current events that they could use in the classroom, but um, has since kind of shifted a little bit and it's a little bit more of a mix. So we have an affiliated organization called Mission 2030 Fund. And that mi- that organizational mission is that by the year 2030, all 50 states will have guaranteed access to a full semester of personal finance. You, you mentioned earlier that this is effective when it's done the right way. Do you have any statistics that kind of articulate how, what effective means and, and, and what the outcomes are, what the positive outcomes associated with this learning are? Absolutely. So this is one of actually the key parts of my job. When I go talk to lawmakers, I like bring documents. I'm like, okay, we have evidence-backed research. We have policy papers. We have studies, right? Depending on what it is that you're looking specifically to show that improves, there are so many studies that point to different uh, aspects. So the first thing is credit behaviors. When you actually teach or when you require financial education, students' credit behaviors improve tremendously. And this is especially true for students like me who are first generation in their family to go to college. And the key differentiator is that they take on not necessarily less debt, but they take on less a lower interest rate debt. So what they do is that they are more strategic about how they borrow money. Before, when you look at data sets of students that don't take financial education classes, they don't exhaust their federal student loan borrowing options first because they don't know the difference between government money and private lenders. So they just borrow whoever is lending them money for college. They just borrow. So they're taking really high interest rate per uh, student loans because they don't know the difference between subsidized, unsubsidized government loans versus private student loans. So when they take a class like this and they learn about interest rates and understanding how to compare loans, they even if they have a, a comparable amount of debt, the interest rate on that debt is significantly lower for students who are choosing to go to college. And then even for students who choose an alternative pathway who don't go to college, their credit behaviors improve because they have higher credit scores, higher savings rates, and they just have better uh, credit usage in general. So they're more likely to pay off their credit card bills and not carry a balance from one month to the next. And all of this uh, research that was conducted, most of it comes from Dr. Carly Urban and um, Ana Maria Lusardi, who are both phenomenal professors. Ana Maria Lusardi is more of an economist, internationally known. Dr. Carly uh, Urban is known for her work at the University of Montana, specifically looking at United States-based uh, research around financial education. But there's so many studies now, which is wild because when I first started going into the space, the the thing that everybody was saying was it's not effective. It doesn't work because there was a study conducted prior to 2010 that did show that uh, education doesn't really make much of a difference on their test scores. It did, even if they did do a little better on their test scores, their behaviors wouldn't change, of course, because the way the course was taught wasn't sticking. They weren't actually getting hands-on experience. So, you know, when you look at the research now, what is most effective is three things. First of all, is when it's taught at a just-in-time phase in their life, which means not when they're 14 years old, not even when they're 15 years old, because you can't learn about car insurance if you can't get a driver's license or buy a car. You have to be 16 to even get a driver's license. So why are you learning about car insurance when you're 14 and you can't? It doesn't make sense. So 16, 17, 18, so we're looking specifically at junior and senior year of high school is what is most effective based on the data because it's just in time for them to apply it. Oh, I learned about FAFSA in school today. And guess what I have to do tomorrow? Fill out my FAFSA and submit it, right? Oh, yesterday I learned about car insurance. Next weekend, my dad and I are going to go buy a car. I'm going to have to buy some car insurance, right? Making sure the students are getting it right when they're about to apply it so that they don't lose it to make sure that it's actually sticky and relevant. So that's junior and senior year. The second thing is making sure that the course is taught with 21st century relevant materials. If you're teaching students how to balance a checkbook, what are you doing? (laughs) Right? Like these students are not doing that. We need to be teaching them about fintech apps, mobile banking, buy now, pay later services. They need to understand all of these things that are happening in the current economy and with their current financial situations, not how we all grew up thinking that money works. It's just not like that anymore. Um, And then the last thing is the teachers who are teaching it have to be highly qualified. No, you cannot just 
pull the football coach off the field and say, coach, you, you, you're free from 12 to 1 on Thursdays and, and Fridays. OK, you're going to be teaching this financial literacy uh, unit over here with these kids on Thursdays and Fridays because you're free. you're the only one in the building free at that time. Look, I, I understand firsthand what working in a school is extremely difficult. Scheduling was the biggest pain in my backside for two years trying to schedule all the kids and all the classes they needed to get. I get it. But we're doing a disservice to students when we say any breathing human can can just teach this stuff. No, they have to be qualified. And so the legislation that proves to be effective specifically mentions the criteria and licensures required, whether that's economics, mathematics, social sciences. But it's very clear that not just anybody can teach this. So do you when you go in to meet with a lawmaker, do, do you just kind of go through that spiel and they're like, yeah. You're you're right. We're gonna we're gonna do it now. How how, how does that process work? <laughs> how do they say no I to wish. that? I wish it worked like that. Where they're like, yeah, let's do it. Um, so it's, it's it depends, right? Like I've heard from some lawmakers immediately. They're like, I'm with you 100. Everything you said, yes. Let's how how can I how can we get this done? What do we need, right? Like what do you need from me? But then most of the time it's. Well, I hear you and yes, I understand every point and I personally agree with you. However, in our state, which is a local control state, it's so funny because every single state says we are the local control state. They all local control states. You're not special because you're local control states. It's, it's interesting how I literally every single governor, treasurer, every single, you know, representative, senator, they all say, well, we're a local control state. And I said, yes. Okay. So because they're very, concerned with local control, which basically means that you give the autonomy and the decision-making power to the schools, to the teachers, to the principals, not to the state leaders to top down, tell the schools what they need to teach, but you give the choice to the schools and to the districts, right? That is how the legislation actually ends up working out. So what I do is I'll sit there and explain to them, hey, if I just run off the top of my head, the past couple states that have passed uh, legislation, Indiana, West Virginia, New Hampshire, Kansas, Michigan, Florida, Iowa, Ohio, uh, in Rhode Island, right? If we look at those specific states, the legislation is very clear about who is in charge of deciding what curriculum is used and what topics get taught. The law very rarely says exactly what needs to be taught. And if it does, for instance, like in the state of Florida, where I now live, it does say very specifically, these topics must be taught, but it says, but not limited to these topics, which means this is the starting point for the course. Teachers can add on, districts can add on, but at minimum, they need to learn banking, budgeting, investing for retirement. These these very core topics are in the law, but that's not saying we're going to pigeonhole you to teach exactly what we tell you to do. It's just giving them a baseline. So I think there's this fear among lawmakers that they're going to disappoint a lot of the, st- the key stakeholders that have supported them, right, in their political campaigns. And even just the fact that they have good relationships with a lot of these folks, and it's tough to get every single one of the key stakeholders involved on the same page. The Department of Education, the teachers union, the teachers themselves, parents, students, the lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, the general public. I mean, there's so many, you know, the bankers league, the credit union folks, everybody wants to be involved because everyone cares about this as they should. But sometimes it gets to the point where you got the too many chefs in the kitchen problem, right? So that's kind of where I see the most difficulty getting education legislation passed is when there's a lot of different key stakeholders and parties involved with slightly different opinions about how this looks and which credits and is it going to be an AP and, but we don't, but we have limited capacity and we have a sub shortage and we, there's so many things. And if you're trying to solve for everything at once, it's really difficult. Okay. That's a, that's a good point. There are a lot of things that we maybe don't consider when we're pushing for for financial education. Um, is there anything that we can do or that our listeners can do to help promote financial literacy laws in their local areas? Because I am 100% on board with you. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Taking action is my favorite thing to tell people about because hello is what gets things done. Um, so actually on the NGPF website, there's a bill tracker. It's the only one of its kind where you can actually just Google bill tracker, financial education bill tracker. And it'll be the first thing that pops up because nobody else is, tra- is tracking financial education bills except for NGPF because we really are committed to this mission of 2030. So 2023 financial education bill tracker will get updated every year following. And what it does is it essentially just 
puts together a very quick map of where we are right now in the country. So as of May 2023, there are 94 active bills that have been introduced in 32 different states, 38 bills which are active in 24 states. So not just were introduced and kind of fell off at some point because many bills die a silent, sad death, but these 38 bills that are still active in 24 states means that they still have hope. They're still in the running, in the process of potentially being signed into law. And then nine bills were already signed into law in eight different states. I was directly involved in so many of those, which is uh, my little hair is like standing on end. How, how much progress that we have made, right? Because in 2018, when I joined the organization, there were only five states, right? 2019, there were eight states. So we're talking about very slow incremental growth. And today there are 20 states, but the bills that are being introduced are the highest number historically that we have ever seen, which means there's a national movement. So when people say, oh, why they don't teach about financial literacy in school? Many schools are teaching about financial literacy and this is spreading, but we just need to kind of do a little bit more of what you're describing now, which is like, what, what can we do to take action and do some grassroots work? So type up bill tracker, NGPF or financial education bill tracker. Look at your state. Look to see, is there an active bill in your state? If there is an active bill, it's going to be bright green. You're going to see immediately who the sponsors are. The word sponsor is just a fancy word for the lawmakers who actually put their name on this bill. They wrote the bill. They introduced the bill. They're the ones who own this bill and are fighting for this. They speak on behalf of this bill every time there are hearings or meetings, right? So you want to find out who the sponsors are and you want to email them, tweet at them, tag them on every social media, wherever they are, like reach out to them, send letters via email, do what you got to do, but make sure they know who you are, what your zip code is, because they care the most, they care about all of us, but they care the most about their constituents who are in their specific constituency. So the zip codes where they serve. So if you live in their specific zips, you can tell them, hey, I, you know, this is where I live. I'm in your constituency. I really care about this issue. I want to see you push this. I want the education committee to vote yes. That's the key thing is the education committee. Every member of the education committee has to vote yes, or the majority has to vote yes in order for bills to move on to the next step. So, you know, they might say, great, I'm going to forward your letter to all the members of the Senate Education Committee or of the House Education Committee. And that way, everybody in those committees will see, oh, there's a hundred emails from random people in this zip code. This isn't such a, a little, you know, off the radar issue anymore. This this matters to people and this is a hot topic. And then they cannot ignore it. And this is a, a nice email that you send to the person who's sponsoring the bill. This is someone who's fighting for the bill. Just just as just to enforce that point. <laughs> I love that, Scott, first of all, because I had to learn that when you are uh, talking to lawmakers, and I know this can seem a little controversial, but what I'm, I'm going to say it because it's true. When you're addressing a lawmaker, first of all, this person ran for office. That is not an easy feat. They are an accomplished person. Okay. You want to speak to them with the utmost respect and also they're going, they're doing public service. This is not easy work. They're taking on a really difficult task of trying to make the decisions about what to prioritize for all of us. So respect, first of all, and gratitude, second of all, right? I always come to them with, first of all, if they're representative, representative. If they are senator, senator. I always say they're full you know, uh, if they're chairperson, chairperson, this, right? I never just say their name. Like, hey, Scott, like, no, hey, chairperson Scott, hey, chair member Scott, hey, you know, Senator Scott, full name, <laughs> like everything, super polite, respectful. And then the second thing is, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And especially the fact that you've sponsored this bill shows that you know how much it matters. And that means so much to me as somebody who cares about financial education, as a parent of high school students or middle school students, as a teacher, as a community member who volunteers at the local school, whatever your connection is to why you care, make sure you share it and thank them because they're the one championing this. If they don't introduce this bill, it's just not going to, it's not even going to come up. Right. So we need them and we need to really thank them, honor them, respect them. And then you can kind of put all the stuff in the email that you, why you care and why this matters. Um, and I've even seen people put to petitions together and literally go throughout the community to their small businesses, to the parents. I got a hundred signatures from all the parents in the two local high schools. And I attached that petition to this email just to show you how much support there is for this issue in this zip code, like that kind of stuff. It's really what moves the needle with lawmakers. 
That's awesome. So, so again, to, just to repeat for, for folks that were, were, were listening here, ngpf.org slash bill tracker. Go in there, look to see if there's any bills in the, in, in the state uh, that, are, that are in there and reach out, thank the chairperson or the person that's sponsoring the bill, uh, ask them to send it to the, the committee and uh, make it clear how much this issue means to you. Very easy. Take you a few minutes. Um, go for it. If your state is not sponsoring a bill yet, just yet uh, give you know another year, and um, they'll be they'll be sponsoring one next year uh, at the rate that she's going at. Honestly, you could even reach out to the education committee members. Anyway, this is all public information. You can just Google, like for example, me. I live in Florida. If our bill hadn't just passed in 2019, I could go or 2021. I could go on and say like Florida members of the Senate Education Committee, Florida members of the House Education Committee. And then I would look at all their names, look at their email address, copy and paste them BCC into one massive email and say, all of you are on the education committee on both sides of the aisle. You are the ones who get to decide where education goes in our future. Financial education is the number one most important topic for our students to learn. We have the highest student loan debt rates. We have buy now, pay later services, cryptocurrency, trading apps, Robin, all kinds of stuff tempting our students. More states than ever are making sports betting legal now. And yet we're not teaching students about the dangers of being addicted to gambling. Like financial education needs to happen today more than ever. So here's a call to action. When is financial education going to come up? And then even if there's no bill that's active, you're still getting your point heard. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt to send that email. So this is fantastic. I hope everyone goes and takes that advice. You know, like where can people find out more about you, support uh, support any of the work that you're doing uh, and or support your future Senate or presidential run coming in 2020, 2030 after you've completed this project? <laughs> That's the thing. When you work so close to politics, you see the ins and outs of just how much work. Like I, I gotta admit, I was always very cynical about politics coming up in New York City. I just, you know, I had that that perspective that like, please, you know, they don't really do anything. They don't care. They're just looking for power and attention. But the reality is there's so many trying to make a difference. And now that I've worked with so many of them, I, I have this sense of gratitude that there really are people out here fighting the good fight. So I personally know that my calling is with financial education. And so I'm not going to go and take on that, the political position. Um, however, I, I have written a book and I do a lot of speaking. So if you want to find out more about my work, support me or hire me to come speak or to offer workshops, all of that is available. Mindyourmoneybook.com or you can visit my personal site at missbehelpful.com. Awesome. And where can people fo follow you on social media? All at missbehelpful, every social media platform. So it's M-I-S-S-B-E helpful. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing for students around the country, for sharing your money story with us, and for your incredible energy and enthusiasm for the topic of personal finance and money. We really appreciate it, Yanelli. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great. Thank you, Yanelli. This was a lovely chat, and we will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Holy cats, Scott. I absolutely love Yanelli, and her mission is close to my heart. What a great show. What a great story. What a fantastic mission she has dedicated herself to. I'm so excited for her success. And listening to her talk, she's um gonna succeed. All 50. When was her when was her goal? I bet she makes it before her goal. Yeah, she, she she's she's gonna crush this. So it was 2030, I think, was the goal. The organization, as a reminder, is next gen personal finance, ngpf.org. Um, so go check that out. And yeah, she's going to crush it by then. And uh, then she'll have to look up and be like, how do I uh, solve the next major world problem um, at that point? So I'm really excited to watch her career transpire. I'll, I'll be uh, really interested to see which states are the stubborn ones that are the last to adopt something like this and which ones um, come along. There are a few that I think maybe, maybe potentially we'll see in the next few weeks after recording this. And um, wow, what, what a difference an individual can make and an organization like NGPF can make. Yes, absolutely. So to reiterate, if you have a state that does not have a uh, whole semester financial education requirement for high school students, do your part. Reach out to your representatives and ask them to create this bill, to further this bill, to vote for this bill. Ask them to help educate our youth in financial, with their financial literacy. That is there is nothing more important than this. Absolutely. I, th I think it's I think it's right. I think it's one of the biggest opportunities in education today. And I think um, 
there's actually been a lot of progress in the last 10 years, um, which may surprise a lot of folks that graduated when I did back in 2009 or before, where that was just not a thing at all um, for my, my high school education. But I think that there actually is being a progress in a lot of states. There's a lot of room to run and a lot of more improvement to make. But um, thanks to people like Yanelli, um, lots of things are, uh, lots of progress is, is occurring. So very exciting. Very wonderful to see. You have a lot of optimism, I think, for the next generations here in America. I am so excited. All right, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He is Scott Trench, and I am Mindy Jensen saying, in an hour, Sunflower. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom, and the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into real estate investing or take it to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.